In the early hours of November 1st, 2014, jealousy turned to rage and Joseph Carr murdered his girlfriend, stole a car, and disappeared into the darkness. Join us for the manhunt. Austin, Texas with the U.S. Marshals Lone Star Fugitive Task Force. And today we're on the hunt for Joseph Frederick Carr. I'm Chris Gotzik. This is Chasing Evil. Joining me today is Mo Siddiqui and Troy Bodie, both who are retired from the Austin Police Department and were task force officers with the Lone Star Fugitive Task Force. Welcome. And we also have Detective Ben Wright from the Travis County Sheriff's Office. Ben gets a little extra love because Ben showed up like a little bit of an Austin uh, law enforcement fashion plate with the uh, tie and no coat today, but uh, but you look great. Uh, Thank you. And perfectly quaffed, and um, that's more <laughs> than I can say for anybody else I've seen from the Lone Star Fugitive Task Force. So, yeah, this is my this is my sharp look. You don't have another look. Kind of made for TV kind of guy. <laughs> As we are on a podcast. <laughs> so, let us jump right in to. Joseph Frederick Carr. Mo, why don't you tell us how he came to your attention? This was a murder case. It's how this case came across our desk. Uh, what the task force primarily does is identify, locate, and apprehend the most violent fugitives mm-hmm. and primarily murder suspects. Right. Uh, and specifically, what we're very good at is locating murder suspects that are actively trying to evade law enforcement because we have the time, we have the resources and the experience to do that. And so that's how this particular case came across our desk because a woman by the name of Kelly Turner was brutally murdered in Austin, Texas. um, And the suspect was actively on the run, trying to avoid being captured by law enforcement. How was she killed? So basically Kelly Turner, I was I was at the trial on this, so I remember this case. You know, we work a lot of cases on the task force. Yes. I mean, over hundreds of murders we've personally uh, have arrested. Mm-hmm. And if you're like me and Troy, I'm going to throw you under the bus with me. We forget a lot of stuff. We just have a brain dump. I, I'd like to think it's because there's so much information coming in, I, but it's probably just because I've been punched in the head too many times and you're just getting older. <laughs> oh, ouch. Um, But there's some guys that can really remember every little detail. I'm not one of those guys, but I remember this one in particular because I actually was on the trial for this. Mm -hmm. How this all came about is is Kelly Turner uh, is actually a hometown girl here in Austin. You know, she graduated from Westlake High School, believe she attended the University of Texas at Austin. And upon graduating, you know, she's an adult and she wants to start her adult life. So like a lot of young adults do, they, they move away and try to set roots out and explore the world. And she ended up in California, I believe. And uh, I believe she got a job as a flight attendant. And I can't remember. I think it was Southwest. Right. Right? Southwest. So by all accounts, uh, you know, she's the nicest person you'd ever meet. She's the flight attendant you would want. Mm -hmm. You know, she's the person that's going to take care of you, going to come and fluff that pillow and ask how you're doing and and, and making sure that you're comfortable and taken care of. Just a beautiful person. 
she meets this guy, uh, Joseph Carr, and uh, she meets him out in California, is my understanding, and he owns this business called uh, Bohemian Blacksmith. He makes basically makes knives. So uh, my understanding is that she got into a relationship with this guy, but she hadn't been home in, in quite a while. So she wanted to not only come back home to Austin to visit family and friends, mm-hmm. but she also wanted to take this as an opportunity to introduce Joseph Carr to her family and friends because it appeared things were getting serious between them, between the two. Right. So what's really creepy about this case is this was like a Halloween case, right? Like, cause right. I think the murder happened October 31st, which was a Friday. Mm-hmm. That's correct. So, um, 2014, 2014. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is crazy. Cause that's like, I was telling you the other day, it's like 10 years have flown by, but for, it feels like yesterday. Uh, think when we, when we start thinking about the case mm-hmm. anyways, they, um, they come into Austin, uh, Kelly and Joseph, and they stay with a friend in Southwest Austin that Kelly had. And I think on Wednesday, so two days before the murder, right. that's actually when Kelly takes, um, Joseph to meet with, uh, her family, not her friends, but family. They have dinner and, What's significant about that is that that dinner is going to be the last time that her family, her actual blood, ever sees her again. So they do that on Wednesday. Then uh, Friday, you know, they're they're adults um, and, and they get, my understanding, they get dressed up and, and, and they're going out, uh, not doing the kid, the you know, the, the 18-year-old UT uh, Halloween uh deal but you know the more adult maybe like the rainy street version right where they <laughs> go to a couple of bars or whatever um but i think what happens is they, they they go out if i remember correctly what what some of the people that were out there with them the friends that testified basically was like you know joseph was being an ass the entire time uh, was basically like jealous that how come you're spending all this time with your friends not paying attention to me and it was just she was not having a good time, right? Kelly was not having a good time, and, right. and he was making it a point, Joseph, uh, uh, just being a little baby. So uh, around midnight, they wrap it up. They go home to the friend's house in southwest Austin. The friend of Kelly, her boyfriend or husband, Correct. his name was Mike Hammond, right? And so they go to bed, and I guess they believe, like, okay, well, Joseph and Kelly, they're going to go to bed now, right? And it was maybe like an hour later where um, according to, and I wish I remembered this woman's name, but Mike Hammond's girlfriend uh, or wife, I, I'm not even sure if they were married or, or whatever, but anyways, she reports that like she heard a scream that she had never ever heard before. Like it, it was it was like nothing she ever heard before. So I believe Mike, uh, we're in Texas, so he, he has a gun. And he grabs his gun. He's going to go investigate, like, what's going on, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, their bedroom is upstairs. He gets to the stairs. And if I remember correctly from reports, he sees uh, Joseph uh, at the bottom of the staircase, covered in blood, holding a knife, and is basically, like, mumbling to himself, like, oh, my God, I can't believe I killed her. And at some point, Joseph looks up at, at Mike and starts to make like he's going to start making his way up the stairs and Mike is like hold up now <laughs> and points the gun at him right and at which point Joe has enough sense right 
he's uh to be like i don't want to get shot being the coward that he is he starts to rummage around the house well come to find out he's actually looking for car keys and he finds the car keys for uh, i believe it's mike's car it was an, a yellow fj cruiser i'll mm-hmm. never forget that yeah. and that's it he bells he takes the fj cruiser steals it right and he's gone and at that point that's pretty much when the task force gets called in right uh, not to be uh, morbid about it or exploitive but how many times did he stab her over 30 times is what i remember right i can't remember what the official reports were but it was over 30 times i know that and in your all experience, what does that tell you about a crime? Does that indicate anything to you That's in particular? Right. Rage. Personal rage. Yes. 100%. Which is significant in this particular case. Because at the trial, Joseph tries to claim self-defense. Right? Now, I'm not a homicide detective, but we are, we are privileged to have one with us today. And I can tell you, from just from my experience, that I have never worked a case where the victim stabbed somebody 37 times or 38 times or however, you know, over 30 times, right? Right. Um, which is basically what he claimed, that he was the victim. Right. Um, but yet uh, she had over 30, 30, 30 wounds uh, from a knife. Yeah, we yeah. don't see that very often. This is all going to be debatable, right? But you're right, like rage, uh, jealousy, all those types of things. He's just, you know, it's a person that loses control. Right. But they say about somebody who can actually stab somebody more than once, it, that, that's so up close and personal. It's very personal. It's very different from shooting someone, right? It, it's, it's a knife going into somebody's flesh, and you've got to push it in. And you've got to do that multiple times. And that's exactly what he did. I've interviewed several people who have stabbed someone, and that is a very common response, is that that first stabbing is a real wake-up call. Whatever moment they were having, no matter how mad they were, it's almost like disbelief. And and in several of the attacks, you know, they stab them that first time, and then they realize, oh, well, I'm, I'm in it now. So they continue to stab them. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a moment when you actually get up close and personal and, and stab someone. Do we know, did he have any history of, of any mental illness or any rage disorder, uh, anger management issues? Me personally, I never came across anything uh, throughout, whether Homicide was doing their investigation, through our own uh, fugitive investigation, or even during the trial, um, if he had any mental illness or anything like that. I do remember that the sister uh, of Kelly saying that, you know, at dinner there was no signs. There was no signs like on that Wednesday they had dinner as a family. She testifies like he was quiet, but, you know, he's introverted. And mm-hmm. so but I, she didn't pick up on any signs like this guy's uh, uh, going to murder my sister. Right. Right. Interesting. So. He leaves. And the call obviously goes to 911. And how long does it take that case to get adopted by the Lone Star Fugitive Task Force? I think probably within three to four hours, they were called in to assist homicide, start doing the background research. So these are additional Austin police officers who are detailed to the task force, but also work with the homicide detectives. If you think that the Marshall's task force is going to adopt a case. That's correct. They'll know everything about it even beforehand. Correct. So it saves time. Got it. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. 
Chris and I can't remember who the secondary officer was. So they, mm-hmm. they do all the research. Joseph Carr left a cell phone at the residence. Obviously, he left in a hurry. Oh, that's right, because uh, that's one of the that's one of the avenues that we're looking at locating yeah. him. Right? I don't even know if he had his wallet on him to have any source of uh, revenue mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to escape very far. Uh, and the vehicle, I believe, we knew that it had like a quarter tank of gas or something. So we knew that uh, there was a potential that he wasn't going to get too far. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. So as far as technology, we didn't have a whole lot of resources, and he had no ties or connections to the Austin area other than uh, his girlfriend. Uh, So we basically had a bolo put out for the vehicle. Be on the lookout for. That's correct. Okay. And... uh, we were all called in, uh, maybe late at six in the morning, seven. Mm-hmm. Right. You spend the day, yeah, canvassing, like you know, doing some basic stuff, like um, just canvassing hotels, looking for this FJ Cruiser. Because we had a plate, and it's funny, right? Like that's one of the things you'll hear cops say this all the time, is that you'll never see a yellow FJ Cruiser, right? But the moment somebody puts out a bolo <laughs> for one, it's like everywhere. So right. everybody's seeing these FJ Cruisers, and and you're getting behind them, and you're checking the plate, and you're like, oh man. It's not our guy. It's not our guy. And, 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 and that's basically what we do all day until Sarge tells us to break it down. And break it down just means what we say when we're, we're like, we're done for the day. We're going to go home and rest for a little bit. Right. We work all day Saturday. <clears throat> Correct. Break it down. No luck on anything. And Sarge usually said something to the effect of like, uh, rest until you feel good enough to come back out. But on this one, it was like, we don't have anything. If something happens, we'll, we'll call you. Right. And sure enough, we, we end up getting a call that same day, right? Oh, yeah. Correct. Same day. Uh, I, and I know these guys feel the same way, but we was, Troy and I were talking. Uh, you're, you're not in the club yet, Ben, but you will be soon. You will Retire be soon. my club. <laughs> we were talking about, like, you know. Um, uh, Just a quick question. Yeah. Will Ben dress this way when he's retired? He can dress in jeans and a T-shirt, and he will still look magnificent. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so this hair, is this is an ongoing different. thing with Ben. Like an on like this is he gets this reaction. He's he, he's very used to it. Everywhere he goes, he's always gotten this reaction. His hair is well kept. He's a very okay. handsome man. And, Just because uh, I've been I've a, been to some offices uh, where, <laughs> uh, especially the marshals, where there'll be one suit in the office, and there was one story where they each had to take a photograph, and they all use that one suit. <laughs> whether and some fit and some didn't fit and then they sent them i think it was to headquarters and headquarters go okay you know what stop being ridiculous I, we want you to wear a suit that actually fits so uh so this is still uh, you know it's unusual and it's respected well f- you know for 17 years when i was a task force officer full time um, before i started doing the homicide stuff i dressed like they did you know blue jeans t-shirts 
um, you know, uh, it wasn't you're, always. You're us. being met with certain really? level of skepticism. <laughs> he did I dress, fixed my hair he, every day. Yes. I will say we're, that. We were that all jealous of Ben. Let's just say. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's. Thanks for the love. Let's get back to this because you guys yeah. are are now resting. You've been you've been searching all day. You know, since since the murder has happened, you have essentially no leads except that you know that he's associated with a yellow FJ cruiser and you've been searching all over the city of Austin and and its outer parts for this one particular yellow FJ cruiser and I would think you know like you guys did is like how many could there be and of course when you're looking more than you could possibly have thought yeah so you get a call on a Sunday yeah that's right uh no 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 it was Saturday same oh, day. Same same day. okay so yeah, you get right. a call on Saturday we we, we we start work. Yeah, we get a call on Saturday. We start working it. We come up with nothing looking for this FJ Cruiser. Like Troy was saying, you know, we, we have some other um, resources that we can use to sometimes locate people that don't want to be found. But we right. didn't have that in this particular case. Right. Mm-hmm. Like guy doesn't have any wallet, doesn't have a, doesn't have any money. I wanted to get this guy. Everybody wanted to get this guy. So we get that call. Well, right. I'll, I'll interrupt you because yeah. I will tell you that I was cheating this day. So, um, <laughs> you know, we have to balance work life, family life. Yeah, sure. And. On this particular Saturday morning, I'm listening to the radio because I know we've got, a, you know, we've got the email. We've been told that we're you know, on standby for this to look for them. Predominantly APDs out running around um, some of the Marshall guys. Um, but we haven't really got any good solid leads. So I'm just monitoring my kid at a soccer game that morning. So I'm going to the soccer game, just hoping that they don't find him until midway through the game so I can get out of there. You know, I don't right. miss anything. Um, the excitement of the uh, takedown or the excitement of the soccer game. And so the game had just ended. Timing was perfect. Um, I'm like, okay, I'm going to grab a little bite. Then I'm going to go join the guys in this hunt. And we get the call that um, that someone has spotted the uh, our suspect's FJ Cruiser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't remember. I think it was Joe Candoli, who at the time was our detective, that actually called in and was like, hey, Mo, they found this. Um, was it within the city limits of Austin? <clears throat> Hayes County. Yeah. Which yeah. is where, for those of us not from? Southwest. Southwest, southwest of Austin. Of Austin. Uh, Probably ten, ten within... Five miles of the actual crime scene, correct? Now, maybe a little eight. Uh, yeah, it was. It was not too far because from South Austin, where the uh, crime occurred, he uh-huh. didn't make it very far. No. Uh-huh. Okay. So I can't remember, Troy. Did we double up that day? Yeah. Or did I meet you out Moe's there? Mo's a very slow driver, <laughs> and so I, when I was his driver most of the time. I'm also very grumpy when I don't when I don't get to yeah. eat or I don't get to sleep. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to drive. You're anywhere. not alone. <laughs> We live very close to each other. Mm-hmm. So I think call Troy and it's like, hey, let's double up. Let's jump in the same vehicle and um, we'll start heading towards where they found the FJ Cruiser. Now, the FJ Cruiser, I can't remember. I think I was asking you, Troy, um, was it a resident in Hayes County that spotted this and then called it in? From my understanding, they got a 911 call. Right. Okay. They got in on a 911 call. Yeah. Okay. So what we were told is they found this FJ Cruiser. It was abandoned in a field uh, in Hayes County. Yes, I think it's Driftwood was the closest uh, area, and there was a blood scene outside the driver's door. What is that? Inside and outside, the okay. car was define blood scene. There was a tremendous amount of blood inside of the vehicle, um, as well as some evidence of uh, bandages. Led you to believe that it was more of of his blood versus the victim's blood. There's uh-huh. that much around the vehicle. Oh, okay. That so that's got to be surprising then. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So we uh, we we head towards that location, and of course, that's one of the beautiful things about the the task force is the persistence and the dedication. We get there, and it's like there's every task force members out there, and mm-hmm. uh, because the FJ Cruiser is empty, we know this guy is on foot. 
he's potentially, you know, he's we're not too far behind him. He can't get too far on foot. Describe did, what kind of area. I mean, the, are you in an yeah. urban area? Is it yeah, rural? Yeah, the setting, it's not, it's not residential. You're, you're looking at car, more like uh, farm-style homes on uh, two to 12-acre lots. Oh, okay. So there's uh, some room to roam. Correct. Oh, it's the, country. Okay. It's country out there, yeah. yeah. So the hunt's on, right? Like, we know this guy's close close by, on foot, doesn't have resources. It's not like somebody's going to come and pick him up, right? Right. So he has to be uh, somewhere around here. When Troy and I get there, um, I think Ben gets there almost around the same time, probably. And uh, we link up with our sergeant, and everybody's kind of, you know, is doing a job already. And so there's this idea on the task force is find work, right? If... If you get there and somebody, you know, you don't just stand around, find work, Mm -hmm. find something to do. Mm -hmm. So Troy and I are like, you know what, what would we, you know, that's, I think that's the way a good cop should think is what would you do if you were the bad guy, right? And so it's like, well, there are residences around here. If I was the bad guy, I might hide out at one of the residences. I might break into somebody's barn. I, you know, so we're like, hey, let's start knocking on people's doors and just letting them know why law enforcement is around. If you see something suspicious, Lock your doors, call 911. You're out in the country. So a lot of these country folk here in Texas, they have guns. They don't close their doors. And they have signs that say, uh, enter at your own risk. Right. And we understand that, right? But we, we also want to keep our people safe. So right. we're out there knocking on doors. And I can tell you, I was telling Troy, I didn't really think about it at the time. But that was the most you know, the, you, we all know how the story ends, right? We're going to find the guy and we're going to end up getting him. But that was the most scared Actually, I was. Uh, no one knew that. So. Oh, no one knew that. Okay. Thanks for that. Spoiler <laughs> alert. You know, I'm glad. I'm Spoiler glad. I, alert. I'm glad I wasn't with you when Game of Thrones was on. Thank you. Um, I'm sorry about that. We, we can we can edit this though. Um, that was the most scared I was, and, and because there's you a lot. Know, of, now, when you say that. Is that something that actually happens to you often on some of these things that you're that there's a component? On, on, on these situations, yeah, a hundred percent. Were you talking about like when I'm when we're going out and knocking on people's doors and checking people's residences? Yeah, that's that's something that that's quite common. And on those situations, those are the ones I I can't speak for everybody else. I never really get scared when right. this when the suspect is right in front of me right because we've rehearsed it so many times we've done it so many times and i feel like we have we're not behind the eight ball right but no matter what you do you can never train for an ambush can't and every time you're looking under somebody's bed or pulling over a couch i mean the, the only thing that's that's going through your head is like this guy's going to jump out with a knife and get me next right and there's no right. way i can train for that i'm like i'm i'm too far behind the eight ball so i i didn't like that but troy and i we we kind of knocked on every, you know, the the immediate area. We knocked on a bunch of doors, talked to a bunch of people, um, which was good because people were nervous. They saw like Air One and yeah, there's a ton of cops out up. there. Right. Yeah. So when we get doing that, uh, no luck. Um, we head back to kind of the general area where everybody's searching. Um, and that's when we uh, link up with Ben. There's actually a, a canine and they're tracking it. At this whole time, while we're out canvassing, and what and what is the canine tracking? Uh, scent. The blood from yeah. The he blood? started at the at the uh, vehicle. Okay. And so, so there are canines that are not necessarily just tracking the scent of clothing, but but blood as well, or is it a clothing thing? 
No, I think it's it's the human scent. So okay. whatever they picked up, like I said, there was a lot of bandages, um, makeshift as well as regular bandages uh-huh. um, that were outside the vehicle, inside the vehicle. Okay. So it allowed for them to have something really uh, significant that they knew belonged to him um, to get on. And this is a pretty wooded area. There were, you know, without getting too geographical, there was a lot of wooded area directly where the vehicle was parked. Um, and then the houses were just a little further down the street, kind of spread out, you know, on one and two acre mm-hmm. plots. And so I feel as though these type of cases, you know, make you a little nervous because you definitely have someone at that point where realize, okay, he's injured um, and potentially he's injuring himself, which means he might be suicidal. And so now you have this guy out there for whatever reason, he didn't finish the job on himself. So he's now out there. And is he going to want us to do the job? Is he going to, you know, jump out and ambush us or what have you? Is he going to hurt other people? If you're willing to hurt yourself, you're willing to do what he's done to this beautiful young lady, um, you know, sky's the limit on what he'll do to us. Right. So I think it does heighten everybody's emotions, um, you know, makes you a little aware. We work in teams. We work well together. Um, and so after, I mean, we had quite a few groups that were going door to door and et cetera. And then about the time that broke down, we kind of moved, shifted kind of maybe towards like towards the outer perimeter um, down the main road that led to that area. Um, and that's where I was in my vehicle. And then I doored up with, uh, with the guys with Mo and Troy. Um, and then we're just talking about, you know, why I was late to the game, all those kind of things. We call it 25 and right. It's like when his driver's side door meets up with his driver's side door and you roll down your windows and you're just kind of like just talking about what's going on. So Ben actually, he observed someone down the road and was like, you know, it's probably not the guy, but we're, you know, we got to do work. We got to find work. Right. But so, And how many would you say members of law enforcement are there at this point? There's a lot. There's a lot. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the 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 Air One footage, right? I mean, twenty five, thirty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's quite a few, and and so at a certain point, you can kind of muddy the water when you're they're doing they're already on this you know mission. They got work to do, and you're trying to get in. So you just kind of want to leave them alone, let them do what they're already doing, and you find somewhere else to be useful. Mm-hmm. So Ben was kind of like, hey, there's this guy down the road. Maybe it's not our guy, but maybe he saw something. Right. You know. So. Troy is kind of like, all right, well, lead the way. So Ben begins to pull off, and uh, Troy does this U-turn um, to get behind Ben. And to the left is this huge open field, and what separates the road from that field is like this wire country fence, mm-hmm. right? Call mm-hmm. that barbed wire in Texas. There, barbed wire. Barbed wire. <laughs> barbed wire fence. <laughs> I can't tell if I was tired or whatnot, but when he made that U-turn, um, as I'm looking out the window, yeah. I just see kind of what looks like it's it's not quite grass. It, to me, it was like, man, that could have been the top of somebody's head. And a part of me was like, nah, you're kind of seeing things. But then my gut was like, well, we got to find work. And, you know, we, we might is, as well. This is work. This is work. Right. This is work. So I was like, Troy, stop the car. And I think Troy kind of like looking the same direction I'm looking at at this point and sees well, me. Maybe it was like a tree stump at first. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, that's one thing, like it's just the, the family thing. Like if I see Troy do something, I'm not even going to ask him like, why are you doing it? I'm just going to follow him. Right. And same thing. So Troy sees me like, I'm like, stop the car. He stops the car and I immediately jump out the car. Right. When I'm jumping out of the car, Troy's not going to ask me like, Troy knows why I'm jumping out of the car. <laughs> right. Right. So he jumps out and he's, I mean, like, and we're talking about, it's not something you were looking at for a long period of time. It was, I mean, no. we're talking about just a, a split second. Oh yeah. Well, they're making a the U-turn second. to make this turn is, and right. 
and literally as we're pulling away from each other, I hear Mo say, hey, what's that? And then their window's kind of drifting away from me at that time. So I end up pulling back around and I'm grabbing my binoculars because I'm not sure what we're looking at yet, but I feel like uh, we've seen something. Everybody's starting to get out of their vehicle. So I grab my binoculars and I start looking and sure enough, um, just sitting out in this middle of this field is Joseph Carr. Uh, he looks pretty wild eyed and, um, you, you saw him through the binoculars, through the binoculars. I can, re- I'll remember like it was yesterday because he looked really crazy. Um, he had attempted to, to harm himself is what it looked like. And he had these huge pieces of meat hanging out of his neck on both sides where he had attempted to sever his own throat. Um, and so he just had these kind of like these wounds and it was covered in blood. Um, and it just looked like something, it didn't it almost didn't even look real. It was so crazy in the binoculars. And so I confirmed, yeah, hey, that is somebody out there. And the guys were already getting out of their vehicle. And uh, where was the bloodhound at this point? I mean, we, was the scent sub taken? taken yeah, they, they the, were the crowd uh, of law enforcement in another direction that this guy was alone in a field? They had not tracked him that far yet. I uh-huh. think they were behind and would eventually caught up to him. Right. Yeah. They were just methodically going through what other steps and they were up on a hillside okay. so it probably would be a difficult to it's about a quarter of a mile from where we were yes. easy yeah easy uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, easy and it's just the three of us out there yeah. in the middle of this giant field it's a big yeah. open area and uh, i want to clarify i'm the oldest out of these guys and i think i won getting over the fence <laughs> you did. I did you did i won that day <laughs> you know what I, I i can't say it's a big big victory but it, uh, the the take the W it did, at, at our age, you yeah, know every it's W something is to brag important. About. Yeah, sure, exactly. In all fairness, I had I'd grab my rifle for some long cover he so that they could safely get over the fence. I, I was smart. So yeah, I was I last that. to get over the fence. So I got on uh, I got on target with him with Mr. Carr, and um, at that point he's seeing us and seeing us making motion motion towards him, and so he is standing up and and he is uh, you know he is brandishing a. Well, uh, I'll tell you something about that. That is the one thing that really, really stands out to me is that he stayed dug down. And actually, if you look at the Air One footage, all around it is like short grass. Mm-hmm. And then there's just like this patch of tall grass. So somehow he's skull dragged his way to this tall grass and laid down. And uh, um, he, even though he's he, like, he was kind of aware, like, okay, those are some cops over there. He never he never actually stood up until Troy and I jumped the fence. Mm-hmm. The minute like our feet land on the other side of that fence, it was like right out of a movie. Seriously, this guy stand. Troy says he stood up out of the water like Jesus, <laughs> because he stood up with his arms spread eagle like this. Right, and uh, he's not wearing a shirt, holding he, a butcher knife, and and he's holding the knife. And immediately I'm like, that's probably the knife that he used to murder. Uh, Kelly, uh-huh. you know, and I'm like, okay, man, this is this is real now. It was but so- also at the same time, I'm like, we did our job. Like, we found the guy. Now, when we got, we still got to finish the job. Yeah. But like, we found this dude. And does he make any attempt to run? We we first engage him, and I think I first drew down down him, and you came up to my flank on my left, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he stood up, as Mo described, and it was a, it was a pretty eerie feeling uh because he had lacerations both sides of his neck he had them underneath both arms 
and he had them. He's wearing cargo shorts, and that was all he had on was cargo shorts, right. and he had lacerations on the inner thighs on both sides. So you've got this guy stand up with a butcher knife, long hair, kind of just messy looking, and he just blood dripping all over his body. Mm. And then when you start giving him verbal commands and he just kind of gives you that the deer in the headlight look and we knew he wasn't going to cooperate at that point and that's when did he Mo, say did he say anything did he respond you know at that point we're trying to get him to surrender peacefully right right so we want him to drop the weapon and then we have a tactic where we actually make them crawl to us we don't mm-hmm. go to them mm-hmm. we make them come to us and um part of that is like you know, like I said, we've done this lots of times and, and we've had to talk and negotiate with murder suspects lots of times. So part of that is you got to make you got to baby these guys. It makes you sick, but you got to baby them a little bit. Right. right? So like, oh, you're going to be OK. Right. You're the you're the victim here. Right. We're, we're here to help you. Right. Um, and that's exactly what I told him. I'm mm-hmm. like, hey, we're here to keep you safe. And that's the reality of it, because if patrol would have stopped this guy, most likely there would have been a shooting or a patrol officer would have got hurt. Right. So us finding him is actually best case scenario for him. And for law enforcement, in my opinion. But anyways, um, I'm telling him, like, we're here to help you. And I remember him distinctly saying, you guys are not here to help me. You guys don't care about me. Right? Like, it's it's about him. He's the victim. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that just goes on uh, to the point where, like, somebody else kind of takes over. Right? So, like, I'm telling him, drop the weapon. You know, we're here to help you. We want to hear your side of the story. Right. We know there's two versions of events. You know, all that type and of how thing. And lo- how long does it take the group, the other 30 officers, to converge on your position? As uh, Mo's talking to him, I'm on the radio right. uh, trying to get everybody uh, to our location. I would say probably less than five minutes. I mean, a couple of minutes. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was. It was. It seemed like a long time because, uh, you know, at that point, Mr. Carr was making it very clear that he wanted us to uh, end his life. Um, he was telling Mo and, and us to just shoot him and, you know, but he wasn't approaching us and Mo just starts talking to him about football. Like, uh, he's like, Hey, no, I've, I've got, uh, I got family and you know, I, I want to watch a football game this afternoon and no one's going to hurt you. And, and just really does a good job mm-hmm. of kind of just baffling him because I don't think that's the response he was expecting. I think he was expecting us to come charging at him, um, screaming at him. And, uh, Mo really did not Mo took it down uh, very quiet, even though it was a long distance. There was no one out there. It was very easy to hear each other um, and continue to just talk to him and, and tell him no matter what he thought or whatever was going on that, you know, we were going to make this better for him and we're going to get him help um, and that we wanted to hear his side of the story um, and did a really good job of just kind of keeping him confused long enough to get additional resources. And it was, it was a good three to four minutes, um, which doesn't seem like a long time until you're thinking, Oh, I'm going to have to shoot this guy. If until he, there's if a guy he takes a two knife. steps this direction, <laughs> right? Yeah, t- a butcher knife. That's already <laughs> clearly, uh, he knows how to use it. He was, uh, he was a very interesting character. So we started getting other people to join us. Um, canines arrived. We were able to get less lethal in the play. Um, with some less lethal shotguns, which are the you know shotguns that shoot the bing bag rounds, mm-hmm. um, and then we did. We just continued to kind of we stacked up and started giving him more commands. Um, you know, he never really uh, approached. He just kind of held himself hostage, uh, for lack of a better term. He would put the knife to his chest and threaten to uh, stab himself if we uh, advanced anymore. So we were just kind of in a stalemate. And you know, we have always found that in those cases, you know, the more time that we can buy into. 
um, this standoff, it, it, it bodes well for law enforcement and for, mm-hmm. you know, in this case, Mr. Carr. Mm-hmm. So he, you're, so yeah. he's, he's standing there. You're giving him commands. It seems like there's not much progress. There's a, there's a standoff, and it just seems like it's going to go on for a while, yeah? I, this guy was a coward, right? That, I mean, that's just what it came down to. At the end of the day, he did not want to face the consequences of his crimes, but yet he didn't have the guts. He could kill someone else, but he couldn't kill himself. So now yeah. he has to drag, drag law enforcement into it, and it's like, oh, well, let me see if I can force them to kill me because mm-hmm. I know that if I charge towards them, they'll they'll probably shoot me. And I And I think all the time about that. I was like, man, you know... One of us could have been stabbed, killed. Um, it, it was certainly possible for him to force his hand if he ran towards you guys. Yeah, and I think that's what he was doing. He was trying to play those scenarios in his head. Right. You know, like all the different scenarios. Can I get away? Can I get them to... Well, okay, what's it going to be like if they shoot me? Um, do I really want that to happen? I think he's just running... All the scenarios that he's running through his head are about how he can save himself. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, how can I benefit myself? Mm-hmm, Up mm-hmm. until the point of the trial, right? He's... He claims he ends up claiming self-defense, so it's all about how can I save uh, myself? I'm the victim here. Right. I'm looking at you know Mr. Carr through my sights, um, trying to make an assessment of you know at what point um, I'll have to stop him if he were to start to a- attack us or charge us, and you know Mo was doing just an amazing job of continuing to talk to him calmly about what I would consider to be random at the moment. I'm sure Mr. Carr felt they were random, Um, you know, talking about family, talking about uh, Saturday football, um, plans for the afternoon. And I think that 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 interaction really kept Mr. Carr from being able to make that decision um, to force us to take his life. So, Mm -hmm. you know, while it sounds like a little bit of flattery on Mo's part, he did a good job. And, you know, I'm a talker and I always enjoy being the uh, voice, you know, I like to talk to our bad guys. I do like to do interviews, those kind of things. And, and this is one of those cases where I found myself in that uh, lethal position where I'm, I'm, I'm holding lethal cover on this gentleman so that my teammates can do the rest of the work, which is notify the team where we are and get, get other resources as well as, uh, you know, treat, keep the situation from escalating any further. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as watching Mr. Carr right through this scope, Um, you know, I see his facial expressions and he'll start to huff and puff and make these, you know, animal noises. Like he's trying to psych himself up to do something, either harm himself or, or charge us. And, and then Mo would be able to just kind of bring him back out of that with just a few words. Um, and then he, you know, it it went on like that until we were able to have more, uh, more folks there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think one of the things is like, um, you know, some people may listen, uh, Hopefully, a lot of people listen to the podcast. Here we go. The whole world. <laughs> this is like Joe Rogan. You better get get out of town, buddy. Um, Stop it. <laughs> but, I mean, but I hope you're right. I don't know if they're ever going to be able to relate to because it's 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 just not a movie, right? Like, if what it's like for Ben to have to make these split second decisions on, am I going to have to pull this trigger and take a man's life? Because some people literally have said. And I, re- I remember this playing, ar- uh, you know, um, uh, armchair quarterback. Why didn't they just shoot him? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they, people that never did the job before. Why didn't you just shoot him? You know, you, 
um, I would say that 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 I think that's a testament to the professionalism of, of the particular unit, mm-hmm. because I can say that I was on the unit for eight years and had over as as a unit had hundreds of murder uh, suspects arrested and we never shot any of them. And not only that, but what a lot of people need to realize, and I hope they do realize, is that shooting him is what he wanted. That's the easy way out, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, as opposed to, you know, doing his time and life in prison, right. which is where he's at now. Right. Um, and it takes a lot. Shootings, you know, that that that's easy. Getting getting a guy that doesn't want to cooperate to get him into handcuffs. That's a whole nother skill set. Right. So time goes by We're you're making that decision and there is a probably a feeling uh, that we not we need to bring this to a conclusion. Yeah. So by that time, uh, we get a lot of resources. I mean, we have air one up above us flying. Mm -hmm. Right. So like this guy's not going to go anywhere now. Right. And then we set up what we call an L configuration. So one of the first things is we have about 30 officers there now. Right. And Ben is 100 percent right. Like if he had any thoughts of trying to get away he probably should have done it before all those 30 officers got there plus the like there's like two canines or something mm-hmm. um so you know he's not gonna outrun the dogs or you know air one right and they set up this l configuration i think that at this point we're like okay if he does charge we need to be lined up like i don't want troy doesn't want me standing behind him shooting right like we need to be shoulder to shoulder and we, we need to be watching to make sure there's no crossfire situations all mm-hmm. that type of thing mm-hmm. once we do that now we know we have the situation under control and it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And eventually he gets to a point where he works up enough courage to basically uh, plunge this knife into his own chest, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think he's ready to like, I, I think he finally drew that conclusion in his head like, okay, let me just do this. And I would say that's probably the, one of the most proudest moments of, of, of my career. That's what I would say. Not that he put the knife in his chest. It's what these guys did afterwards, right? A lot of people would have said, man, Kelly Turner, you read about her life. She's such a beautiful person. And, and, when, and when you take her life, you didn't just take her life. Like, that's probably the worst thing a parent can ever go through. Yeah. Losing a child. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. That's like, uh, I would say you're like the walking dead. That's how I would feel. I have a son. Right. You take my son from me, I'm existing. I'm not right. really living for right. the rest of my life. Right. So he's destroyed them. And a lot of people would say, well, man, why, why, why try to save this guy? Just let him, you know, let him bleed out. Right. You know, you don't, you don't have, you, you don't have any moral obligation to. And, and, and that shows the professionalism of these guys that they, they don't let their emotions get involved. Right. right. They do their job. Mm-hmm. And so they get, they, uh, <laughs> we do deploy some beanbags, give, <laughs> give them a little bit of love. Um, so he's standing there and most talking to him still. And he's got the knife at his uh, chest. And at some point, you see him kind of thrust inward to his mm-hmm. chest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he goes to the ground, I think, immediately at that point, correct? Yeah, he makes a large, like, a, I mean, he growls and then just kind of starts shoving it in. Kind of slow. He doesn't stab himself necessarily. He plunges. He just starts pulling the knife into his chest area. And as soon as we see that movement... You have several people, you know, yell impact, which there was kind of a plan in place that if he did something, we were going to start with less lethal means to try to thwart him. And so they did. They uh, they impacted him at least two times, maybe three. Um, and as he's going to the ground. With, with beanbags. With, with beanbags. Bean right. Yeah, with these beanbag rounds. And then the knife comes out of his hand. 
but it's still in close proximity. Oh, so he's still a threat close. at that point. Right. Way too close. Uh, um, but he does. That's when he goes to the ground is when he gets beanbag. That that yeah. does stop his mobility, which is what they're designed to do. Right. So, and then we are able to get closer to him. I remember securing the knife after Sergeant Sikowski kicked it away from him. Actually, the end of the knife was broke off, which led me to believe that he actually broke the knife on his sternum when he tried to thrust it into his oh, chest. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. he had lots of injuries at that point. Um, but one of the things that we run with um, as a task force is we always have guys that have medic training. Um, not always, but we try to have uh, medic training guys there. And in this particular case, we had several people. We had EMS standing by. Um, so we were able to get him treated really quickly. As a matter of fact, I remember as handcuffs were trying to go on him, we were looking at tourniquets and they were already applying, you know, direct pressure to the wound in his chest. Um, and I mean, it almost seemed a little surreal. He was gone very quickly, like from the moment, the impact of the beanbags to he's secured, they're loading him up and, and he's on his way to a hospital. Um, and then it's just kind of over. And then you, you know, so for me, I went from family soccer game to almost taking this gentleman's life and being put in that position to, all right, we're done, high five, good job, and then back to the family to go have dinner that night. So it's, a, it's an interesting job working for the task force because that's the way it is every day. Right. You know, so. Huh. That's well put. That's exactly, it's just, just up and down. It's crazy. So when you were at the trial, his plea is not guilty and he's claiming self-defense. Did did he say anything? I don't know if he testified or did his lawyer put it in any way, shape, or form that it sounded remotely credible that there was a potential for self-defense? Well, I mean, I, I would imagine I would imagine his attorney thought you know this was the best defense because that's what they went yeah, with. Yeah, I was just curious in yeah. terms of I you, didn't see him testify. Uh, what I do okay. know did he he did testify? He did testify, uh-huh. which is really crazy because you usually don't have the suspect get on stand right right but he did and and uh probably was the nail in the coffin for him i mean i think it i think the trial itself and and correct me if i'm wrong uh, ben it was only a three-day trial it was very it, quick very quick it did not take jurors very long to see exactly what this was and what it you know mm-hmm. and give him what he did earned. yeah right and his sentence was what life life in prison life in prison mm-hmm. and as a state charge because we know if it's federal, you do the time. What does that mean in <laughs> a, as a state charge? Yeah, I'm not clear what the actual sentence. If it was life with parole or life without parole, um, but it doesn't mean till the end of his natural life. It is a yeah. it is a finite sum. Um, so in this particular case, I bet he'll be eligible in like 20 years for parole. Right. Um, now he won't get it on his first. That doesn't seem to be the case, but. Uh, you know he'll he'll walk the streets again at some point in right. his natural life unless mm-hmm. he something happens to him while in prison. Right. There was one thing on the trial. What I distinctly remember is that uh, Kelly Turner's. I believe this was her father. This was one of the things that stood stood out. Like uh, eight years, um, uh, sobbing uh, during the trial, mm-hmm. and I distinctly remember he came up to me, Sergeant Sakowski at the time, who was a sergeant over Tech Intel. And he shook our hands and said, thank you for catching this guy, um, you know, to give him some sort of peace, right? right? Like, this guy's just not out on the loose, and it's terrible, terrible. Right. That must be very satisfying to know that you've been able to bring some sense of relief 
to Kelly Turner's family. Mo Siddiqui, Troy Bodie, Ben Wright, thank you very much for coming in and sharing your story and helping bring justice to Kelly Turner. As always, please help us spread the word about Chasing Evil. Tell your friends, leave us a glowing review, and of course, give us a five-star rating. We would truly appreciate it. And finally, Chasing Evil is produced with the cooperation of the United States Marshals Service and contains interviews with current and retired employees as well as other persons. Opinions, positions, and views expressed by any of them may not reflect the official views, positions, or policies of the United States Marshals Service. Be safe, everyone. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.